Did you know even though evolution is taught as a fact in most schools, it does have many scientific problems? I want to welcome you to Creation Radio and TV. I'm your host, Mike Riddle. And the title of today's session is, Why the Origin of Life is a Showstopper to Evolution. Well, let's start with there are three main areas of evolution. Number one, there's cosmological evolution, which is the origin of matter, the origin of the universe, the origin of stars, galaxies, and planets. Then there is chemical evolution, which is the origin of life. And then there is biological evolution, which is the diversity we have in life, commonly referred to as Darwinian evolution. Now, each one of these areas really depends on the other. In other words, if chemical evolution has no observational evidence for it, then the whole model of evolution is really resting on faith. Because the origin of life is a critical component of Darwinian evolution. If it can be shown that the origin of life cannot happen and did not happen, then all of evolution is based on faith and it must be accepted ultimately by faith. Therefore, in this talk, we're going to focus on chemical evolution, the origin of life. So the question, is it possible, is it even possible for life to originate by naturalistic processes? If not, then the honest thing to do is rewrite our textbooks and tell the truth about science rather than hiding behind what you would call pseudoscience and pretend stories. That would definitely be the honest thing to do in education. Now in this session, we're going to keep the science very simple. We're just going to look at proteins, the probability of a single protein originating by naturalistic processes. In this session, we're going to keep it just to the observational science. We will not let our emotions or biases hinder our thinking method here. Now to start with, there are many recognized roadblocks to the origin of life. Let's just look at five of these requirements or roadblocks that affect the formation of just one single biological protein. So again, this is going to be very simple. We're all we're going to look at is the protein. Now, proteins are very important because they account for about one half of the dry mass of a cell. And they, the proteins, and the amino acids that make them up are referred to as the building blocks of life. So this is a very important concept here. So what are these five roadblocks? Well, number one is the problem of oxygen. Number two is the problem of no oxygen. Number three is the problem of water. Number four is the problem of amino acids, and number five will be the problem of order. So those will be the five roadblocks we'll go through. So let's start with roadblock number one, the problem of oxygen. Now, why is that a problem? Well, in our state, in our living state, oxygen is necessary for us to survive. But at the molecular level, oxygen destroys chemical bonds. Therefore, if there was any oxygen in the early Earth's atmosphere, life could never have started. Let's look at a quote from Dr. Dwayne Gish, who had his PhD in biochemistry, and he states this, an atmosphere containing free oxygen would be fatal to all 
origin of life schemes. While oxygen is necessary for life, free oxygen would oxidize and thus destroy all organic molecules required for the origin of life. So the presence of oxygen in the atmosphere is a definite roadblock to the origin of life. Now let's go to roadblock number two, and that is called the roadblock of no oxygen. See, if there was no oxygen in the atmosphere, which they teach in some of our schools to eliminate the problem of oxygen, they assume there was no oxygen near the atmosphere. But if there was no oxygen, we would have no ozone. And with no ozone, folks, since the ozone's made up out of oxygen, there would be no life. You see, the sun's rays would come down and destroy any chemical operations or anything chemical or anything trying to become life. It would be called crispy critters. Let me read you a quote from Michael Denton, who is an evolutionist, has his PhD in molecular biology, and he states, what we have here is sort of a catch-22 situation. If we have oxygen, we have no organic compounds. But if we don't have oxygen, we have none either. So what he's saying is, if we have oxygen in the atmosphere, life can't start. If we don't have oxygen, life can't start. Now here are three scientists who have their PhDs in geochemistry, and they state, a recent Nature publication reports a new technique for measuring the oxygen levels in Earth's atmosphere just some 4.4 billion years ago. Their findings suggest that the Earth, early Earth's oxygen levels were very close to current levels, meaning this Earth has always had oxygen in the atmosphere. Therefore, the assumption by the evolutionists that there was no oxygen is a false assumption right there. So there's two roadblocks, oxygen and no oxygen. Now let's look at roadblock number three called water. See, water is necessary for us to survive, but at the molecular level, water destroys chemical bonds. It is a process called hydrolysis. Hydro meaning water, hydrolysis literally meaning water splitting. splitting. As soon as any amino acids might have formed in the oceans or any other pool of water, they would have almost immediately been destroyed. Let me read you some quotes here on this issue. How about the Encyclopedia of Science and Technology? And it states, besides breaking up polypeptides, hydrolysis would have destroyed many amino acids. Then there's Richard Morris, who has his PhD in physics, and he states, furthermore, water tends to break chains of amino acids apart. If any proteins had formed in the oceans 3.5 billion years ago, they would have quickly disintegrated. So oxygen is a problem for the origin of life. No oxygen is a problem, and water is a very big problem for the origin of life through naturalistic processes. Now let's look at roadblock number four. It is called amino acids. Yes, we have to have amino acids. They're the building blocks of life. But amino acids come in two shapes. We commonly call them left-handed amino acids and right-handed amino acids. What's the difference? Well, like our hands, they are mirror images of each other. Now, here's the problem. All of life forms, all of life, not just humans, but all of living things, contain only left-handed amino acids in their proteins. None of them contain right-handed amino acids. 
Let me read you a couple of quotes on this problem. Linus Pauling, PhD in chemistry, states, This is a very puzzling fact. All the proteins that have been investigated obtained from animals and from plants, from higher organisms, and from very simple organisms, bacteria, molds, even viruses, are found to have been made of L-amino acids or left-handed amino acids. Furthermore, Jonathan Sarfati has his PhD in physical chemistry states, many of life's chemicals come in two forms, left-handed and right-handed. Life requires polymers with all building blocks having the same handedness, called homochirality. Proteins have only left-handed amino acids, but ordinary undirected chemistry, as is the hypothetical primordial soup, would produce equal mixtures of left and right-handed molecules called racemates. In other words, the natural tendency is always to bond left and right-handed amino acids. This, folks, is a poison to life. Even if our scientists, when they start with all left-handed amino acids, they revert back to a mixture of left and right-handed. Now, when something dies, over time, the amino acids will revert back to left and right-handedness. So the, again, this is a major roadblock for the evolutionist. Again, the natural tendency is always away from life, never towards life. So there, again, are four of the major stumbling blocks. Now let's go to roadblock number five that is called order. All these amino acids have to be in the correct sequence. Having just all left-handed amino acids is a big enough problem, but getting them in the right order multiplies this problem. John Ashton, he has his PhD in chemistry and professor of biomedical sciences, states this, unless the amino acids are in the right sequence, the code will not work to carry information into the cell. So again, these are just five roadblocks to life originating by naturalistic processes. Again, they were the problem of oxygen, the problem of no oxygen, the problem of water, the problem of amino acids, they all have to be left-handed, and then the problem of order. So a question now, is it probable, is it even possible that this could happen by naturalistic processes? So now we will turn to the math section of this talk. And I call it probability made simple. Big numbers, but the math is going to be very simple. So the question, what is the probability of getting one protein by naturalistic processes? Let's start by looking at what we know about proteins and amino acids. First of all, there are hundreds of different types of amino acids out there. Secondly, only 20 of these hundreds of types are used in life. Third, proteins come from small to very large. They range from about 50 amino acids to over 26,000 amino acids. And next, a cell is not made up of just proteins. There's many more complex components such as DNA, RNA, organelles, ribosomes, and even the cell wall or membrane. We're again, we're just looking at the protein. Now, to help keep this math very simple, we're going to look at the probability of getting a very small protein. 
a protein consisting of only 100 amino acids. And again, amino acids come in sizes from about 50 amino acids to over 26,000. And we're just going to look at the probability of getting just one small protein. Now remember, only 20 of amino acids out of the hundreds are used in life. They all have to be left-handed and they all have to be in the right order. All those add to this probability. So again, what is the probability of getting 100 amino acids? And these all have to be, again, the 20 used in life and all left-handed. What is that probability? Well, just to give you the answer, that probability is 10 to the 30th power. That is one followed by 30 zeros, and that is a number that looks like this. That is a huge number. Matter of fact, that number is greater than the number of stars that exist in our universe. But there's more to this problem. There's more. They all have to be left-handed. All we start with just getting the 20 that are used in life, but those 20 come in different shapes, left and right-handed. So now we have to add this dimension. They all have to be the right 20, and they all have to be left-handed. What is that probability? Well, that turns out to be number that looks like this, 10 to the 130th power. That's one followed by 130 zeros. But there's more to this. They all have to be the right 20 amino acids. They all have to be left-handed. But now, they all have to be in the right sequence or the right order. What is the probability of that occurring? That turns out to be 10 to the 190th power. That is one followed by 190 zeros. What's so important about that number? Well, William Dembski, PhD in mathematics, writes this. He concluded that the chance can be eliminated as a particular explanation for a specified system when it exceeds 10 to the 150th power. Folks, what did, we, what did he just say there? Anything greater than 10 to the 105th power will not happen. And we're talking about one small protein, the probability being 110 to the 190th power. Furthermore, David Abel, director of the Gene Emergent Project, states that there is an upper limit, and he calls this the universal plausibility metric beyond which an event will not happen. And I quote from him, the equation incorporates the number of possible transitions or physical interactions that could have occurred since the Big Bang. And we took into account every possibility, every interaction that could occur in these last 13 and a half billion years, according to evolutionists. And he came up with a number that is 10 to the 140th power. Folks, what does all this mean? Well, the difference between 10 to the 140th power and 10 to the 190th power is so large a number, it is greater than the number of stars that exist in this universe. And folks, that is quintillions. That eliminates any possibility of the origin of life through naturalistic processes. So the probability of getting a small biological protein can't happen. It doesn't even matter how much time you throw at it. 13 and a half billion years still will not solve the problem. John Ashton, PhD in chemistry, states this, dating the origin of life to a time of billions of years ago still doesn't help explain how life could start from non-living matters. 
So when evolutionists pour more time into it, folks, it does not solve the problem. The question now is, when will our public education system and our secular universities return to teaching science in the classroom and not faith? You see, many educators seem to not have enough faith in their own model of evolution, so they are afraid to teach students to think critically and evaluate evolution. Do you hear what I just said? Our teachers who believe in evolution seem to lack faith in evolution. And doing so, they will not teach our students to evaluate evolution or critically thinking. In other words, if students learn to critically think, and this is what they're afraid of, if they train the students to critically think about evolution, our students would soon see it does not work scientifically. You see, evolution is being used in our education system to replace a creator God. It is just an excuse for not wanting to believe in a creator God. Now, a cell, we haven't even talked about the cell. We're just on a protein. When we look at a cell, it's made up of thousands of proteins. We can't even get one. Plus, there's many other components of a cell that are even more complex than protein. Again, things like the DNA, the RNA, organelles, the cell wall. All these are more complex than a protein. Now, Donald Johnson, PhD in chemistry and a PhD in computer information science, states this. Since there is no known scientific procedure to generate life in the laboratory, let alone in some unknown prebiotic mechanism, one could assume the probability of life from purely physical causes is zero. Robert Gange, PhD in physics and information storage, writes this. The likelihood of life occurring through a chemical accident is for all intents and purposes zero. Did you get what those scientists are saying, folks? Zero. It will not happen. Now, let me read you a quote from another scientist. He has his PhD in mathematics, and he states, The really vast improbability of 1 in 10 to the 40,000. Now, what he's talking about, folks, is not a protein. Now he's talking about the probability of one cell occurring by random chance. And he says, the really vast improbability of 1 in 10 to the 40,000 poses a serious dilemma for the whole of evolutionary science. Life could not be an accident, not just on the earth alone, but anywhere, anywhere at all in the universe. He just said the origin of a cell is improbable also. Sir Fred Hoyle, professor of astronomy, writes this. The likelihood of the formation of life from inanimate matter is one to a number with 40,000 knots after it. That's 40,000 zeros. It is big enough to bury Darwin in the whole theory of evolution. There was no primordial soup, neither on this planet nor any other. And if the beginnings of life were not random, they must therefore have been the product of purposeful intelligence. Wow, did you see that? So what can we conclude about the origin of life? Number one, since the origin of life is a critical component of the evolution model, and there is no evidence how it started by naturalistic processes, evolution 
must ultimately be accepted by faith. That is a fact. Second, the public education system needs to start teaching the truth of science and not the stories and fables commonly taught that support evolutionism. We need an education system that does not attempt to force students what to believe, but an education system that teaches students how to think. And third, the origin of life is a showstopper to the evolution model. Now folks, there are only two choices when it comes down to it. Let me give you these two choices. Number one, a belief in something no one ever saw happen, for which there is no mechanism for how it could have happened, and no scientist can duplicate in the laboratory. That's choice number one. Never been observed, no mechanism for how it could have happened. The only other choice we have, folks, is a personal creator called God. And his word states, For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Isaiah 45, verse 18. Then he says again in Nehemiah 9, verse 6, You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, and the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. And finally, in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, his word states, For by him all things were created, that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, in him all things exist. Thank you, and God bless you. If these lessons had been a blessing to you, you might consider financially supporting the Ministry of Creation Training Initiative. You can do this by going to our website, creationtraining.org. Again, that's creationtraining.org. Your tax-deductible donation of just $20, $50 or more a month, or a one-time gift of any amount will make you an education partner in building an army of Christian educators who can teach the biblical account of creation and train others to be able to defend their faith and be biblically faithful to God's Word as it states in 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Thank you.